You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, in the same way as uh, Greg's mother passing on, I wanted to make sure also that you were aware that one of our own members, Larry Ezell, passed away on Friday morning very early. If you didn't know Larry, um, well, you should have, because Larry was the man. And interestingly, Larry is the first actual congregational member that we've lost in this campus. There have been some other family members that have experienced death and tragedies and loss, but Larry's the first one of us at this campus uh, really amazingly in almost 10 years that we've lost. And we love Larry. We miss Larry. Larry was a fixture uh, down on the first floor in the foundry many days between the Sundays. He would encourage our baristas. He got to know and have relationships with many of our regular customers down there. He would encourage one guy in particular that sometimes other people didn't quite know how to deal with. Larry didn't care. Larry would talk to anybody and everybody. Even if they weren't there, Larry was going to talk to him. Larry was encouraging this young guy who was a dad and just telling him, hey, listen, hang in there. This is how you love your son. This is, and that blessed this younger man tremendously. So when he got word that Larry had passed, he was deeply moved and touched. And um, that's just the kind of guy that Larry was. Now, there's going to be a memorial service in this room later this week. We're not sure of the dates yet, and there's still family members traveling in and all kinds of logistics to take care of. But Larry always had an incredible attitude. If you knew Larry, he was always going to stick out one hand or the other to shake your hand and say hi and smile at you, and he would do it through pain. This guy had so many chronic pain issues from multiple back surgeries. He was fighting cancer. He had cardiac issues, but he always had the greatest attitude despite what was going on with his body, and I just loved being around the guy. I miss him. I love that guy. I, I miss my brother in Christ. I miss my friend. And I thought about it as I was even getting ready for this weekend. Like, oh, that's the perfect guy. Larry Azell's attitude is really sort of the overarching microcosm of the passage that we're going to look at this morning in the book of Romans chapter 12. As I think about this passage, we're going to finish off, Lord willing, this chapter in the book of Romans this morning. And Larry Azell, who is presently with Jesus is the poster child for the written word. I can look at Larry's life and I can look at this passage and I can tell you that our big idea for the morning goes very simply like this. Attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. That's what this passage is all about. And as I think of the life of Larry Azell, that dude finished well. So, attitude is everything. The way we see, the way we feel, the way we experience the world really is up to us, and we have been given the dignity to rein it in unto Christ's likeness. It also happens to be the very most important thing about all of us is our attitude, so our text today really matters for every single one of us sitting in this room. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Romans verse uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. I want to remind you, this is incredibly important. The overarching three theme and thrust of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now that's incredibly important for this passage because this passage has been sort of the seedbed of a whole lot of misapplication. But we want to remember that Romans ultimately is about the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. So, chapter 12, verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, we started the book of Romans way back on August 11th of last year. And we really didn't get a single imperative, meaning an instruction or a directive, until we got into chapter 12. And now Paul says, it's go time. I'm going to machine gun Kelly you here with so many imperatives, they're not even complete sentences. He's just going to unload the truck and rapid fire them. So here we go again, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, or not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. This passage is yet another proclamation and a presentation of the gospel. Around here, we like to say that the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's this great story, this awesome announcement of God has done a thing, and therefore, it ought to produce a change in all of us, not just one day when we die, but even more importantly, while we live here and now. The gospel transforms us already and not yet, ever increasingly, into the kinds of people that God actually created us to be. You might say that the gospel enacts on us a redemptive recreation. That's what the gospel is in the process of doing to us. Even though we can't often tell or feel or sense it at the time, we are increasing the kinds of people that approve of God's goodwill. Our attitudes become changed, and as I said earlier, attitude is everything. Now, as these rapid-fire imperatives come across in this passage with all these directives, to have a certain attitude, I want to make sure and point out, this is not a checklist it's often preached, it's often taught this way. This is, this is who you should be. Now hold up a picture of yourself to the text and see how you're doing. Oh, you're terrible at life like I am. So this is not a checklist to see how you're doing. No, this is a demonstration, it's a proclamation, it's a projection of the ethic of the kingdom of God, now inaugurated, now initiated by the coming of Christ in the hearts of men. It's not a material governmental kingdom that he's actually established physically. It is a spiritual kingdom that he's established in the hearts 
of people who know and love him. And this is the ethic of that kingdom that is supposed to be being produced persistently in us. But nobody gets saved and is immediately fully baked right there on the spot. No, this is not a checklist that you hold up yourself and say, this is how I'm doing. But it is a, an indicator. Oh, there are some things that the Lord is working on me here and he's chiseling that little bit off or he's burning that little piece off and it kind of hurts because I like that about me, but it's not what he has for me to be the walking around ethic of the kingdom of God here on earth. It's been said that this is sort of the, uh, the Pauline version of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus will give. Paul is gonna quote through this whole passage, verses nine to 21. He's gonna quote from the Old Testament a few times. I'll quote from Proverbs and Deuteronomy. He quotes from the sayings of Jesus himself from Matthew five and Luke six. He quotes from a lot of just early church uh, catechism, a lot of early church teaching that was just going around there. And he sort of makes this mixtape of this is what being a Christian, net of the coming of Messiah, is all about what it actually looks like. We also have to remember that Paul is writing to a specific group of people in a place for a purpose, that these people are in the heart of the Roman Empire. At the time that he writes this, we don't have any evidence that there was actually a bubbling persecution happening against them, but Nero is emperor. He just hasn't gone completely crazy yet. He's going to go crazy, and ultimately he'll end up taking off Paul's head and doing horrible things to Christians. But by the time Paul writes this, things are still pretty normal in Rome. It's about to get really, really hot, and so it's timely that Paul writes this to them as preparation for what they're going to experience. Now, it's an interesting passage in terms of style because it's completely different than what he does in the first 11 chapters of discussing doctrine. It's all very propositional truth in its organization all through chapter 11. But here at the end of chapter 12, Paul totally shifts gears. Now this is totally geeky, totally greeky. Nobody in this room, including me, actually needs to know this and nobody should care about this. But Paul's style of writing, this last bit of chapter 12, is called a perinesis. And it simply means he's just gonna cobble together all of these little nuggets like post-it notes you might say he's going to put them all together so that you could actually kind of move them around a little bit so that you could have this sort of okay i understand here these are all the little facets and aspects that make up the ethic of the kingdom of god and he writes in this really fascinating structure again nobody else should really know or care about this called a chiasm it comes from the greek word he where we have an x and the idea is he makes this literary structure where he says, okay, here's a point, and then here's a supporting point, and then here's the main point, and then here's a supporting point again, and then there's a summary point. So it sort of a, like, works like a V, like this, because you have an X. So he's going to do this twice. Verses 9 through 13 are a chiasm, meaning it's, it's situated like this, so they actually do relate to one another. And then verses 17 to 21 is a chiasm, so that they see the form go like this again. Opening point, supporting point, main point, supporting point, concluding point. And then right in the middle, verses 14, 15, and 16, nobody knows why that's there. It's just like Paul goes, hey, let's just throw that in there as well. But it doesn't really connect thematically or stylistically or structurally, so I just want you to know that. I have no idea why he does what he does. He's an apostle. He's inspired by the Spirit. He gets to do that. So, Having said all of that as a run-up, now I want to walk through this passage fairly briefly because it's pretty self-explanatory, and then I want to try to see if we can apply this very practically to our lives. So in verse 9, Paul starts off, and really verse 9a is the title of his passage. 
It's the title of everything he's going to say hereafter. He says, let love be genuine. That's as good as we can translate it. And I think it's probably a good uh, interpretation, but really there's no verb there. It's interesting. It's simply the love that's not hypocritical. That's the title of his passage, the love that is not hypocrisy. And then everything that comes after that is going to be an explanation of or an illustration of what a sincere, genuine, true love that is not hypocritical, what it looks like, what it does. So that's instructive, that's influential for us as we read this. Oh, somebody who has been transformed, back in Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the renewing of their mind, they are ultimately and immediately to be characterized by a sincere, genuine love that is not hypocritical. And then everything else that follows is simply tangling off of that. Everything else. But love is the primary category. And it's not just love like friend love. That's phileo. It's not erotic or romantic love. That's eros. This is agape love. Agape love was not a common word used in the Greek world in the Roman Empire. Christians sort of took this word and repurposed it and made it mean something very specific. It is a love for the sake of the other only. It is a self-giving love. It is a love that says, I am moving my life toward you for your good because that's the kind of person that I am. Not because of what I will get from you in return. No, that's not agape love. Agape love is my life for yours because I deem that you are worth that because that's the kind of person that I am. Because you see, I have been transformed by a good and gracious God, by the gospel, by the renewing of my mind, and now my attitude is one of agape love, an agape love that is without hypocrisy. You've heard this before. Hypocrisy comes from the ancient Greek theater. They would speak from under a mask. Hupo is under krise, a mask. Who they actually were was not what they were saying what they were doing. Now, if you really want to see Jesus get super fired up and really irritated with people, it's when he encounters the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In Matthew 13, he just starts ringing off all these woe to you, woe to you, woe to you statements to the Pharisees because they're speaking from under a mask, as it were. Jesus will have none of that. So this is all about sincere love. What does a person who has been transformed by the gospel, who has received the righteousness of God freely in the person of Jesus Christ via a renewed mind, what would they be? They will be all about agape love. Well, what does that actually look like? Everything that follows is merely a support structure to that opening title. So I'm just going to walk through this very briefly. He says, A love without hypocrisy or a genuine, sincere love, someone that is characterized by agape love will abhor what is evil. It's not separate. It's not have a sincere love, new idea, hate what is evil. No, no, no. Someone who has a sincere love will abhor evil. Not tolerate it, not wink at it, not go, well, you know, boys will be boys. Well, you know, it's the 21st century. Things have changed. The culture's kind of slipped. No. Someone who is, cap- who is characterized by an agape love will abhor what is evil. Not just fear consequence. You see, they've been transformed via a renewed mind, and now perhaps they hate things that they didn't used to hate. Now they hear language. Now they see images, and they go, oh, that is so painful. That is so injurious. Don't you see? 
we, we, we used to wink and nudge at movies in which people were treated as objects of somebody else's affection and pleasure. But no, no, that person is made in the image of God. That person has a soul and has an eternal plan by a good God. I can't think of them anymore as merely an object of pleasure. I abhor now what is evil because God is transforming me, because I'm characterized by agape love. Do you see? One of the first facets of what this looks like, this ethic of the kingdom, is I increasingly hate what is evil. Now I'll tell you, I have conversations with immediate family members all the time, not the ones that live in my house, but let's just say his initials are my brother. And what I hear from him all the time is, oh, it's no big deal when I see that, when I watch that, when I do that, I can handle it. My response as a little brother, which you would love to hear too from your little brother, I'm sure is, that's not the point. You handling it is a complete misunderstanding. An evidence of your agape love characterization is that you abhor what is evil. You don't tolerate it. You don't just stand for it. It grieves you. Now, I can handle it. I think it's actually handling you. And then we don't talk till Thanksgiving. Anyway, that's not your problem. He says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now, Paul does this back and forth through the rest of the passage where there's a, a positive, there's a negative. There's a negative, there's a positive. He kind of bounces back and forth. It's not just abhor what is evil. It is hate exceedingly what is evil. See it for what it is. William Barclay says that the greatest defense against sin is to be shocked by it. Hands up. No, I'm kidding. Just me. Who often is not nearly shocked enough by sin. But just as passionately, hate exceedingly evil, he says, cling intimately, tightly. It's, it's almost like whew, this word that he says here for hold fast to what is good, it's only used a couple other times in the New Testament, and it has usually to do with mm, interpersonal physical relationships. <laughs> That is to be how tightly we cling to that which is good because we are characterized by agape love because we have been transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have a new attitude about this and have I mentioned attitude is everything. Now the second half of verse nine all the way through 13 is this first chiastic structure, this first chiasm. We'll see the heart of that chiasm right in the middle of verse 11. But for now, I'm going to keep walking through verse 10, and we'll get to verse 11, make sort of a, an emphasis on verse 11, and then we'll come back out through 12 and 13. All right? So, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. There's a little play on words there. It's philostorge Philadelphia. It's just two words. It's love like family like brothers. So in other words, love one another in the church. He's talking to the people of the church. Love one another as if you were a warm family. But please understand the, the corrective there. Don't love one another like you love your actual family because you probably hate each other. No, no. Love one another like a family that actually loves one another. Treat the other people in this room like other people can, you know, mess with me. But if they mess with you, I got to put my hands on them. Like, no way, because this is family. You don't mess with my family. And that's how we are to speak of one another. When the early church began calling one another brother and sister, the rest of the pagan world was shocked, freaked out. You don't do that. Your family, your house is who you are. It's all that you have. But the early church said, no, we share a greater common denominator. 
than our family lineage and heritage, we have a great common denominator that is our Father whose Spirit indwells us. This is what we're here to do. Love one another with brotherly affection. Then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. I, as a kid, listen, on Saturday mornings, I used to watch those Chippendale cartoons. And they're like the nicest little chipmunks either. And they always were outdoing one another, saying nice things. And I was like, that's a fantasy. That's a cartoon. Because outside of this house, that does not happen anywhere. Except oftentimes, there are these times it has happened in a church where we outdo one another in showing honor. And very specifically, what Paul's saying here is work harder than anybody else to make sure that they all get the credit. That you don't get the glory, you work harder than anybody else to make sure that you're not the guy that ever gets the credit for anything. They get the credit, they get the renown, they get the recognition, they get the glory. Outdo one another, they get the honor. Your own glory, your own credit, your own recognition is not your project. By the way, that's completely upside down from how the rest of the world operates. See also, uh, the internet where you are encouraged 24-7 relentlessly to build your own empire, to gather your own glory. Paul says, no, 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 outdo one another in showing everybody else honor. Because don't you see, we'll find out in a moment, the whole world is watching. If you're just a whole bunch of fiefdom builders like the outside world is, why bother? I actually get to sleep in. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. <laughs> sort of a double whammy there. Don't be lazy. Be fervently at it. Paul knows that for all of us, even in the church, sometimes, I'm, just, I'm not trying to make eye contact. Just trust me, these lights are really bright. I'm wearing Coke bottles up here. I can't see your face. Sometimes we run out of steam in ministry. Not anybody in this room, I'm saying there are some perhaps that have at one point in your life, if you can remember back, or you've heard a story about this, someone in the church runs out of steam in ministry and they say, you know what, I'm gonna take a break from this. I, I, I think I've put in my time, I'm done for a while. The next thing you know, two and a half decades have gone by and you're like, this church has got nothing going on. Paul says, no, 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 don't be slothful. Be intentional, be deliberate. And then he says something really interesting. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And this is the heart of the first little section. The first little chiastic structure is here in verse 11. Be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal. No, 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 no. Be fervent. And the word there is literally be boiling. There is supposed to be a furnace within you of the Spirit of God because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of what you deserved and did not get. There is a furnace inside of you. And when that begins to sort of sputter out and flicker, you look at the cross where you belong, where you didn't get what you deserve, and the Spirit of God indwelling you and the Word of God around you and the people of God around you, man, that Spirit furnace is supposed to boil and then what happens? Well, someone who has been transformed via a renewed mind, who was characterized by agape love, they serve the Lord. I, I can't put it any more directly than that. Someone who has been transformed via a renewed mind, who is now characterized by agape love, they have a boiling spirit within them, and it makes them serve the Lord. 
I, I can't imagine not doing this. It's like Jeremiah said, this is a fire in my bones. If I don't serve the Lord, I will be burned up from the inside out. You ever felt that way? I'm not saying that you've all got to be preachers. I'm not saying you've all got to be deacons. I'm not even saying that you've all got to be in the nursery. It wouldn't kill you. But there ought to be some way in which you're saying, I have a boiling spirit within me. What happens then? Serve the Lord. But please understand, serve the Lord out of a boiling spirit, not out of willpower, not out of guilt or shame or should or ought. That never scales. All that does is breed bitterness and resentment and frustration with your church. No, 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 no. Have a boiling spirit. We know that this is God's purpose and his plan for each and every one of our lives. Well, that's verse 11. Verse 12, I love verse 12. Verse 12, in three little expressions, is the whole of the Christian experience. And I love that Paul puts it like he does. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. I am certain of this. I will see Larry Azell again, and he's going to have hair. It's a confident expectation of something good in the future, and so I rejoice. It is the most certain, sure, secure thing in the universe, my future. It's future history in the mind of God, and so I rejoice in that hope. But that in no way promises, that in no way posits that I'm not going to have trouble in this life. Oh, no, 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 no. There's no prosperity gospel in the Apostle Paul, by no means. He says in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. The word for patient here is hupomone. It is to hold up under the weight of tribulation, philipsis, of pressure, of burden, of this fallen world trying to conform and crush you into something that God did not create you to be. Be patient. Hold up under the burden. All by yourself, without the word, without the people. No, of course not. With the spirit, with God's people, with the word of God. Hold up under it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. How do we do that? By being constant in prayer. We practice his presence through prayer. We talk to God. I talk fast to God. Sometimes I I forget to listen. I know that's hard for you to imagine. It's true. Sometimes I talk really fast to God and he's up there going, I didn't know that I could actually get tired, but this guy's actually doing it. I talk to God. I listen to God. I meditate on his word constantly, consistently in prayer. That's the Christian life. Rejoicing in hope. We know how this deal ends. It's hard right now. It's hot right now. And God's using this hot, hard right now to burn pieces off of me, to ever increasingly transform me into the image of his son, to transform me by the renewing of my mind so that I will be characterized as that kind of person who is an agape love kind of guy in this community. Sometimes it's hard for him to take some chunks off that are not characterized by agape love, but it's worth it. And I spend the time in prayer, not always the way I should. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. This is living generously. In the outside world, in the pagan secular world, everything that I have is mine, and much of what you have is about to be mine if I get my way. Not in the church, not those who are transformed by the renewing of their mind, who are characterized by agape love. They believe that their resources are simply on loan and that they are to share them with the saints, with other people who have need. 
I got a good buddy, Tom Ramey. If I got a dollar, you've got a dollar. Some of you have heard that. That's what Tom always says. And he's got people in his wake from decades back that know that Tom has said that to him because Tom did it and Tom meant it. To share and steward our resources for the sake of the body because Jesus is worth it. Because that's what a person who is transformed by the renewing of his mind, who is characterized by agape love, that's what they do. They live generously. Contribute to the needs of the saints and, oh, I love this, that he doesn't include this word, seek to show hospitality, to treat strangers with kindness, to treat strangers like you like them. But he doesn't say just want to. Don't just, I kind of wish I was the person that was hospitable. I kind of wish I was the person that welcomed people in and gave them. No, no, no. Look for ways to do it. Seek to show hospitality. We are to be head on a swivel, on our toes, looking for ways to surprise, bless people. I, I would love for this church, for this campus, this time next year, to be known in this community as that campus of people that gorilla blesses people. There I was, and this guy, Scott Gill, just walked back and he gave me a Whataburger. I didn't eat it because I didn't know where it really came from, but still, that's amazing. That this campus becomes the kind of people who just gorilla blast people. This is what Paul says, you're to be known as in the heart of the Western Empire. We are in the center of East Texas. It's kind of like the Roman Empire with more pine trees, but we have an opportunity. Now, verses 14, 15, and 16 are sort of these just one-off pow, pow, pow verses. They're beautiful. In verse 14, he's going to talk about how do we deal with people on the outside of the church. Back in 15 and 16, how do we deal with people who are in the church? So in verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Now that's incredible. Paul is not saying that if you are the recipient of abuse, that you should not report it to the, uh, to the authorities. He's not saying that. He's saying when you receive persecution, candidly, most of us in our day and age and in our context do not understand persecution because of our faith. Our country is not on fire despite so much rhetoric on the news and on the internet and in talk radio. Our country is not on fire. If you want to be in a country that's on fire, be an outspoken Christian in North Korea. You will be persecuted. You might have people here who don't like you. Well, So if you are the victim of abuse or of a violent crime, of course the authorities are to be involved in that. We'll talk more about that next week, of course, in chapter 13. But do not repay. Do not ask God to withhold blessing from them. Do not ask God to pour out curse and malice on them. That's interesting. Now he'll pick up more on this in a moment. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This is where we as a church family get to be characterized as those who have empathy. We empathos, we get in and we feel their joy and we joy with them. When they're sorrowful, we feel their sorrow with them. When someone is experiencing a windfall of joy and, and happiness, we don't cross our arms and go, that's not fair, that should be me. I should be the happy one. Huh. And when someone is going through a hard season of grief and mourning, we don't go, finally, they so deserve that. What kind of people are you that would do that? None of us. I'm just saying we have to decide in advance how we do that. We enter into and experience it with them. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. That's yeah, a weird translation. It's really think rightly about one another. Verse 16 is all about think, think, think. Three different clauses that all use the same verb, think. 
Think rightly about one another. Think about whose they are before you think about what they look like or what they have. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't be thinking too highly of yourself, but associate with the lowly. And maybe you are the lowly. Never be wise, that's again thinking, in your own sight. When you think you figured it all out and you're the wisest guy in the room, surprise, we all know better. We just haven't told you. You're not. So don't ever think that you're wise in your own sight. That's a bad attitude. And attitude is everything. Attitude is everything for someone who's been transformed via a new, renewed mind who is characterized by agape love. Well, very quickly then, verse 17, the second chiastic structure that's in the form of an X. 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is brilliant language. Everybody knew from antiquity all the way to the time that Paul writes this, everybody knew Hammurabi's code, teleonic punishment. If someone takes your eye, you take their eye. If they take your tooth, you take their tooth. It's just the law of the jungle. This is just how it works. Paul says, nope. Nope, nope. Messiah has changed all of that. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes Proverbs. He also now is going to quote specifically from Jesus in Matthew 5, 44 and Luke chapter 6. He's going to say, no, we actually turn the other cheek. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God's better at it. The old proverb, if you go to seek revenge, you better dig two graves, one for your enemy and one for yourself. Leave it to God. He's the only being that can actually execute it sinlessly and in perfect justice. See, Jesus came on the scene and he re-architected, reoriented the culture of the kingdom by inaugurating his kingdom in human hearts. You know what the very last miracle Jesus does prior to his resurrection? It's a demonstration of the reversal of the old way of thinking. Peter, a fisherman, either the greatest or worst swordsman of all time, cuts the ear off Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now, he was either incredibly accurate or he was going for the knee and is really bad. Whichever, Peter says, hey, you attack us, we attack you back because that's the ethic of the whole world. And Jesus says, stop it. I'm flipping that upside down. We will have no more of this. And then Jesus replaces Malchus's ear and he goes and he demonstrates the absorption of, of evil and malice in the world into himself. He upends, inverts, and twists inside out the old way of recompense. Paul says, we are to do the exact same thing because the world, the skeptical world, is actually watching. And when we do this, we get to mirror Christ to the outside skeptical world who doesn't think there's much to our confession at all. We get to demonstrate that there actually is. So the whole heart of this second chiastic structure is there in verse 19. Do not take vengeance, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, another supporting statement, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, this is revolutionary. When you find your enemy at a disadvantage, 
put your foot on his throat and push. No, it's not what he says. That was the old world ethic. No, when you find your enemy at a disadvantage, take the advantage to gorilla bless him. Out of nowhere, unexpectedly, give him something to eat, give him something to drink. And then Paul uses this wonderfully, huh, expression. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't sound pleasant to me, candidly. But it's an expression. It's also referenced in Proverbs 25. What we think it means, it's referring to an ancient Egyptian custom that most people in antiquity would have understood. If you had done something wrong to show repentance and contrition, you would put a coal, a, a tray of burning coals on your head and you'd walk around and say, you see there, my repentance and my contrition are rising to heaven. Okay, in other places, Paul will say things like, when we repay evil with good, like in Proverbs 15, a kind, soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Paul says, no, but when you do that, you place coals on their head and you actually maximize the affliction and the indictment against them that God will judge. That's not why we show humility, but we can take comfort in that God sees and knows everything and we can trust him to do what only God can do. And then finally, Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil. How are we overcome by evil? By playing according to that playbook, to the system of worldliness and Christlessness, but overcome evil with good. Intentionally looking for opportunities, planning purposefully in advance to find ways of doing good. Where there is evil, we do good. Always according to the character of Christ without question. Our attitude is everything. So how can we apply this to our everyday walking around lives today? Three quick applications from this passage. The first one goes like this. Love is the major, everything else is the minor. If you went to college and you had 17 minors but no major, you probably have no career. <laughs> you have to have a major. And in this passage, along with the entirety of Scripture, love is the major, everything else is the minor. It's just like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 reminds us that love is the most central, foundational aspect to Christian attitude and actions. If I do everything else but have not agape loved, I am a clinging symbol. Paul will say elsewhere. We have received that kind of love from God. The sovereign of the cosmos loves us for our sake because that's the kind of God that he is. And it's that unconditional love that is sufficient to fill us up in every other aspect of life so we don't ever have to try to be grasping, trying to get affection and attention from anybody else or any other source less noble. We have received full, infinite, unmitigated, unconditional love already. So love of God and love of others really are the two marks of a Christian. You can't say, oh, I love God, but I cannot stand any of his people. Sorry, God said, those are my kids. You can't do that. You also can say, I love people, I love people. I have no use for God. That's impossible. People in that situation will merely be means to accomplish your end. Love of God and love of persons goes together. As our love grows because of our transformed lives and renewed minds, it provides an arena in which we can express the ethic and attitude of the kingdom in this world. So, leads me to my second point very quickly. It goes like this. Serving the Lord looks like serving others. 
Serving the Lord looks like serving others. God doesn't really need anything. He's fine. How do you hug the neck of the sovereign of the cosmos? It's the person next to you is what he wants to see. Right in the heart of that first chiastic section, we have a call to have our spirits boil while we serve the Lord. Passage goes on to describe the various ways in which we look to serve others, both in and outside of the church. That's interesting. Because the way that we embrace God and show him how we love him is by serving and loving his children, those who are already here and perhaps those who are not yet among us as family. Since we have received abundantly from our Lord, we're authorized and unleashed to give generously of our resources so that somebody else can experience the grace of God in that very practical way. We pray all the time, God, would you do for them what you have done for me? And then his hands and his feet look exactly like mine as I am the physical presence of Christ in the world and so are you. This is the good that we approve of with our transformed lives via a renewed mind. Third point is going to be familiar because I use this one all the time because I think it's one of the most profound biblical truisms in all of Scripture. It goes like this. The only thing God gives you control of, uh, control of is your attitude. You don't get to have any say in the weather. You really don't have any say on the stock market. You don't even really have that much of a say in what happens in our presidential election coming up in November. Did you know there was one? It's coming. You have no control over it. You can yell at your TV all you want. You can yell at your phone. You can yell at the internet. It doesn't care. It doesn't care. The only thing you and I have any control over in the cosmos is our attitudes. Despite all the other things that are going on, it's our thinking and our feeling. And we have three ways from this passage that we can train our attitude, that we can rein it in and have control of our own attitude. Number one, we train our attitude to see the world through God's eyes. We do that by reading scripture. We read his word to think his thoughts after him. So we train our attitude to see the world through God's eyes. That's wisdom. And we do that by spending time in his word, with his presence through prayer, and with his people in community to think God's thoughts after him. Number two, we train our attitude to be one of love for the other at all times in all contexts because that's the kind of persons we are being transformed into through the renewing of our minds. To be a, a love for other kind of person. Number three, we train our attitude in advance, never in the heat of the moment. If you're trying to figure out how to do this when the circumstance arrives, you'll blow it just like I do. We decide in advance, never in the heat of the moment, what our attitude is going to be. And then you will approve the good and perfect will of God. And you will think, it's happening. It's transforming me. My mind is being renewed. My attitude has changed. I'm characterized increasingly by this agape love. Now, I mentioned earlier that Romans 12, 9 to 21 was essentially the Pauline version of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to reiterate, that's not a checklist to say, how are you doing? It is a demonstration of the ethic of the kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and what Paul is saying in Romans 12 is that the bar of righteousness is actually so much higher than you would ever imagine. The Old Testament law said don't com commit adultery, don't commit murder. Jesus says, oh, no, if you've ever been cut off in, on Broadway and waved your fist at that maroon minivan, whoever you are, I've done it. You're guilty of the fires of hell. If you've ever looked at a woman inappropriately, you're guilty of adultery. No, the bar of righteousness is way up here, actually. But Paul's whole theme 
is the righteousness of man given freely, a righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he says all these incredible things, raising the bar of the righteous requirement of heaven. There's no mistaking the very first person Jesus encounters after he's given the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> is a leper. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount to these unregenerate Jews on a hillside in Galilee, and they all go, ah, that's very bad news. We can't do any of that. And so a leper walks by, and Jesus sees him, and the leper engages him in conversation and says, but you can make me clean. All the stuff that you just talked about, I could never do. I'm cut off from the community. I am unclean in society, but you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him and he is. And he becomes in an instant in the one who has received the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to remind and repeat the offer again today. This is not something that Paul describes that you and I can do, but if you look to Jesus and say, I'm a leper in so very many ways, you can make me clean. The answer is already yes. Whether you're a believer and you've tried to just do your best and then you've gotten frustrated and resentful and bitter and calcified and you've sort of just gone to the sidelines, please come back for your sake, for our sake. Or perhaps this morning somehow you're here and you're not a believer and you're thinking, I sure do want authentic community. I sure don't want, I, I do want all these blessings. I'm telling you, they are foreign apart from the gospel. And so I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He took away the sin of the world and he fulfilled the demand, the demand of the law. We invite you to believe that and we want to invite you to have a conversation with someone about that. My hope, my prayer is that this will be a group of people who are the walking around aesthetic and aroma of agape love and that our attitude will be everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this challenge. I pray, God, that your word will continue to sound forth, not mine, and that you would be honored by the preaching of your word, and that it would find itself rooted deeply in the hearts of all these your people gathered around. Father, if there are any this morning who do not know you, who have simply tried to make their world a better place by trying harder, would you reveal to them the futility but that someone who is indwelled by your spirit, whose spirit boils within them, they can serve the Lord in a profound way with exponential increase and impact. Father, would you continue to lead us forward as a campus and as a church? We will be careful to give you the honor. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.